0: That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you.
1: My name is Sarah Kim, and I'm from Austin, Texas. I'm a Cheeselandian because while life is great, cheese makes it better. Go to cheeselandia.com to learn more. And if it's for you, sign up. This week on Meat and 3, we rethink surplus by exploring how innovators are promoting sharing mindsets and responding to excess in creative ways. The whole life cycle of food would be the third largest greenhouse gas emitter behind China and the United States if it were a country.
0: You know, in the age of COVID, where a lot of those institutional processors did grind to a halt and a lot of farms had to dump milk in Pennsylvania, even while supermarket cases were, were bare, the organic market stayed strong.
1: They source all of these ingredients, they do all of this work, and then they just boil it for a few minutes and then they throw it away. Tune in to Meet and Three, available wherever you get your podcasts.
2: This is What Doesn't Kill You, Food Industry Insights. I am your host, Katie Kiefer, and today we are catching up with one of my very, very, very favorite guests, uh, Leah Douglas from the Food and Environment Reporting Network. Uh, Leah, in case you haven't caught a a podcast with her before, um, is a journalist covering food and agriculture uh, from Washington, D.C. She focuses on corporate power, my favorite topic, consolidation, another favorite, regulation, big business and political economy, as those subjects relate to food, agriculture, labor, land, and the environment. She is an associate editor and staff writer at the Food and Environment Reporting Network, uh, and she has written for numerous publications, including The Washington Post, The Nation, The Guardian, Washington Monthly, Mother Jones, Fortune, Time Slate, uh, Pacific Standard, The Oregonian, DCist, and elsewhere. She was the 2020 recipient of the National Farmers Union Milt Haeckel Award for Excellence in Agricultural Reporting and well-deserved and was a member of the 2019-2020 cohort of the New Economies Reporting Project Finance Solutions Fellowship. Uh, Welcome back to the show, Leah. It's been a few months. I've missed you. How have you been?
3: Thanks so much for having me back. I've been uh, doing all right, better now that spring has started. Yeah, definitely better now.
2: What a rugged winter that was. I happened to be rolling around the uh, upstate New York for most of the winter, well, for five weeks, um, sort of waiting out the polar vortex. And um, I can say with uh, authority that I have not shoveled that much snow since I was a very young person. It was a nightmare. <laughs> it frickin' snowed every other day, and it didn't just dust. It was like two to four, four to six, six to eight inches every other day. A nightmare from my point of view, and I do not, in case any of you were wondering, do not do winter sports. So, yeah, I did not greet those snowfalls with joy. Anyway, um we are going to talk today about a story you published in Fern Food and Environment Reporting Network uh, on March 8th about the Farmer John processing plant owned by the Smithfield Company. Um, and and I'm, I'm just curious, like after all the reporting you've done, because you and I have you know basically checked in almost every month for about a year now, um, what, what drew you to this story in particular?
3: Well, the outbreak that's been going on at the Farmer John plant, which is in Los Angeles County, there's a couple of uh, sort of unique things about that facility and that outbreak. I mean, first of all, you know, Los Angeles County is not necessarily the the place that would come to mind first uh, when folks are thinking about meatpacking. So the fact (laughs) that this is an urban environment, uh, the part of the county that it's in is very industrial. So there's a lot of other manufacturing plants there as well. And it's been um, there's been a lot of outbreaks in that uh, the city is named Vernon um, in los angeles county there 's been a lot of manufacturing related outbreaks of covid there uh, so it's it 's an interesting unique um, place to be looking in terms of workplace safety in general mm. uh, and this this outbreak has also been going on for many many months uh, one of the longest um, running outbreaks that I've been tracking, and also uh, just massive in its scope. Um, Nearly half of the workforce has been infected with COVID, and it's also uh, the outbreak picked up pace this winter, um, which is, you know, a time that uh, a lot of other outbreaks at meatpacking facilities uh, appeared to be slowing. Um, This outbreak was speeding up. So there's a few different reasons that we thought looking into this plant and how it's been managed by the city and by the state uh, would be an interesting case study for where are we in the, in the winter months um, as, we're, as we were approaching the year mark of COVID, uh, what's happening at some of these facilities
2: yeah right. Um, and then what you know because it is uh, as you say located in a manufacturing hub um, in a very urban area of California, the Los Angeles county, um, are you were you able to tell whether the spread of the disease was from plant to community or was it as uh, Smithfield tried to push back from the community to the plant or and I guess does that even matter really when all is said and done?
3: Well, that distinction of what constitutes, uh, you know, a workplace related case of COVID is hugely controversial, as, you know, we've talked about. And I'm sure listeners are aware mm-hmm. that's definitely been, um, you know, a, a topic that's uh, that's been litigated, that has ongoing litigation um, that's related to whether workers can get um uh, workers' compensation benefits or their families can get benefits um, if the workers die of COVID. Oh, right. um, you know, so that's that's really a cr- critical question. And it varies a lot uh, by health department, you know, how the, the agency is making that distinction. So I, as a reporter, uh, just following, you know, what the, the L.A. County um, Health Department is has identified as a workplace case, um, and uh, LA County, one of the reasons that this story was also uh, we wanted to pursue the story is, is one of the few counties in the country releasing, um, you know, very detailed data on uh, businesses that have had COVID outbreaks. So we're able to track over many months, um, you know, the state of this outbreak, and they have their own methodology for defining a workplace outbreak, which is explained on their website.
2: Right, right, and then they use that methodology. Uh, I mean, Smithfield uses it essentially to contest fines and legal action, and presumably uh, the onus to um, you know compensate workers who have fallen ill or died. Am I right in that?
3: Yes, the meat industry has has consistently said that um, you know in a lot of uh, instances of outbreaks that um, you know it's not clear whether workers are contracting the illness at the plant. Um, or in the community, and whether, um, you know, outbreaks are originating from workers who were ill already and and brought the virus into the facility uh, versus being Mm -hmm. infected at the facility and bringing it back to the community. So this question of whether it's workplace spread or community spread um, recurs, has recurred often in my reporting this past year. And, um, you know, workplace safety advocates and and unions and other um, public health experts um, have made the point that, you know, in many cases, um, you know, the rate of spread is, is so significant at these facilities that it, it is an outlier compared to, um, you know, other types of, uh, you know, places where people are coming into contact within the community, um, but also that, you know, employers have a certain responsibility towards their workers, um, regardless of, uh, you know, whether the source of the outbreak is inside or outside of the plant. So, um, again, right. all those questions are, are constantly evolving even still.
2: Absolutely. Now, one of the things your investigation showed in reporting on this particular plant was that they have inconsistently reported their cases, meaning I guess that, you know, for a while they were they were reporting very uh, diligently. And then there seemed to be some sort of guidance from the local public health officials that they didn't really need to do that anymore. And then uh, and then maybe they were required to then do it again. I don't I didn't quite understand that. Um, But I'm wondering how you figured out. Um that there were inconsistencies in the in the caseload that they were reporting and um and were and were there
3: other violations that you uncovered uh in finding that out? Sure, so we um had some uh public records that were obtained through a FOIA request that uh showed emails between um city and state uh health uh, officials and uh, or I should say city and county health officials and the management at the Smithfield plant. And one, one element that those emails revealed was that, uh, the city of Vernon, um, had a couple week period in, um, in the last spring where its direction to Smithfield around, um, you know, whether and how to report worker illness, uh, changed. The, mm-hmm. the plant had been reporting illnesses to the city with a lot of regularity, um, and then, uh, city health official cited um, president trump's executive order from april which um you know declared me packing um, infrastructure to be critical infrastructure using the defense production act um to say you know we don't need you to report cases anymore to the city um a few weeks later after uh, consulting with the county health department the the city official walked back that direction and said actually please do Resume reporting cases. So I think the big picture there is, is there was a lot of confusion Um, in the spring, you know, when this outbreak was underway, um, you know, dozens of workers were already infected. There was confusion around whether and how Smithfield should report to the city, to the county, to the state. Um, And all of those different uh, levels of authority had different um, expectations of the plant. Plus, this federal order uh, around which, as we've discussed, there's been a lot of controversy, a lot of litigation. What did that, um, you know, DPA order mean in terms of mm-hmm. what the industry had to do to be in compliance? So, mm-hmm. uh, that, that was one element that, that we uncovered through the, the FOIA request. Um, additionally, as a state health authority, uh, the, the state OSHA office uh, had its own uh, fine of the Smithfield facility um, for uh, not properly reporting worker cases. Uh, we didn't get a lot of transparency into I mean, what exactly that meant, but we do have the the fine from the state. Uh, so, so the, again, the big picture there is that, um, you know, there's been not consistent requirements at the federal level uh, by any means for um, companies uh, or states to report, you know, worker illness in this sector. Um, so there's been a lot of variation at, at down to the city level, um, and a lot of different places for what's expected of these companies and when, when they're in compliance and when they're not. And the result of that is, um, you know, anywhere from confusion, miscommunication, um, to, you know, express taking advantage of loopholes and, and, uh, and violating orders that are in place on, on the part of the companies.
2: And what about now with the Biden administration? Have they had, uh, you know, the bandwidth to address um, some of those um, requirements to make them more more transparent, more obvious, more consistent across the board?
3: Uh, I have not seen any uh, new directive from the Biden administration related Mm -hmm. to standardizing reporting of uh, workplace outbreaks. Um, That's still something that's being negotiated at the state level. uh, As far as I know, there has been administrative efforts around workplace safety that extend um, into the the regulatory sphere, but not uh, the data reporting as far as I've seen.
2: Right, right, and then there was another thing that plants were also found to have testing and quarantine failures what what you know, describe what they were doing I mean they were they first they were testing then they weren't testing or then or they would test, and if somebody had a negative test, they'd send them into the workplace, even if they had been exposed. Um, you know, talk a little bit about that because that, that was sort of alarming,
3: <laughs> yeah, so this was another um you know incident that we uh, uncovered with the public records request, so there was some communication between. Um, a county health official uh, and the uh, management of the Smithfield facility last June um, related to uh, the company's practice at the time of, um, you know, if an if a employee was exposed to a coworker with, with COVID-19, so they were in close contact, uh, you know, within a small distance of this, of this infected coworker for an extended period of time. Um, the plant was testing the worker. And if the test was negative, allowing them to return to work at the time the the county, uh, excuse me, the state um, health order was to quarantine that worker for 10 days, even if the test was negative. So remember, Mm -hmm. at the time, you know, there was, um, you know, two week quarantine recommended by the CDC in general for exposure to COVID. And the state order was, you know, in a workplace context, this person has to be quarantined for 10 days. Um, So the Uh, The practice of testing once and getting one negative test and having no quarantine was in violation of of a state health order. The company did say that, um, you know, it complied with uh, mandates issued by the local health department's Um, and uh, a city health official told us that after this um, direction in June from the county to end this practice of the one negative test that the company did um, get into compliance with that county uh, Uh directive. So, again, that just gives us a little bit more insight into last spring, you know, what was going on at this facility and and how are decisions being made about whether and how to test and quarantine workers um, even after they'd been exposed to COVID.
2: Right, right. And, of course, I mean, in a way – You know, much as I I love to heap scorn upon, uh, you know, these companies with the the, uh, plethora of confusing uh, instructions, miscommunications, and of course, the overall incentive to maintain profits, you know, you really can't blame them for not having it completely 100% correctly done. So now by November of this past year, uh, following a six-month investigation, you um, cited in your article, uh, California OSHA, which is the Occupational Safety and um, Hazard Administration discovered that there were inadequate training, masking, and distancing protocols within the plant. And by that time, I'm wondering how many workers in the, I mean, because it seems to me by, okay, in the first six months of the pandemic, right, nobody knows what the hell's going on, fair enough. But by November, I think we had a pretty good bead on how things were supposed to be handled. And yet uh, somehow there didn't seem to be any robust uh, masking, training, distancing protocols um, in the plant. And so I'm wondering how many workers sort of from the summer on ended up getting sick or dying. And, And more importantly, how many since that report was issued? In other words, since November, there's still been a lot of people getting sick. Am I right?
3: Yes. So in November, um, Cal OSHA brought a fine against, excuse me, against Smithfield for violations of this plant. It was um, about a hundred thousand dollar fine, which was at the time and and I believe still is the largest citation that's been brought against a meatpacking plant by a safety and health um, administration agency, federal or state. Um, And at the time, there were uh, more than three hundred and fifteen worker cases at the facility. And, uh, you know, it's it's worth noting with the, the six month investigation, you know, means that the, these violations happened at any point. We don't have the granular, or I don't have the granular information from Cal okay. OSHA as to, you know, when exactly those violations happened. So it could have been at any point in the six months prior. Um, but, you know, since, uh, you know, one of the reasons to return to, you know, why this, why were we investigating this plant, you know, 315 cases as of last November. Um, Today, according to Los Angeles County Health Department that I just checked right now, there's been 796 cases at this facility. So more than twice um, the number since that fine and citation. So, you know, Mm -hmm. one of the crucial questions facing OSHA this year has been um, one of the uh, major criticisms, I should say, of OSHA is that, um, you know, the fines levied against these companies have been you know a minuscule fraction of their um you know annual profits say oh, yeah. you know for comparison and and a lot of um you know a lot of critics have said that OSHA should bring greater fines what's the utility of the fines has been you know an, an active question um so it's an interesting data point that at this at this facility since the fine in november um cases have more than doubled uh, so yeah. Um, we, you know, we've been able to see that. Um, you know, how, it's just an interesting. Um, gives us some more information about what does the fine do um, to incentivize the company one way or another. Um, well, when it's hundred thousand
2: dollars or fifty. Or some of the other fines were like thirteen thousand dollars, fifteen thousand dollars. I mean, these are laughable uh, in the context of a company like Smithfield that is generating hundreds of millions of dollars. Uh, in revenue every year, with with you know probably at least half of that being pro- net profit, so it's 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 kind of staggering that even an organization that is supposed to be uh, involved in worker safety and health um, can't bring themselves to <laughs> drop the hammer a little more forcefully, you know. I mean, a hundred thousand bucks is nothing to one of these guys. Absolutely. Anyway, we're going to take a quick break for a sponsor drop. We'll be right back with Leah Douglas talking more about. Uh, COVID and meatpacking and and more, more of the same. Stay tuned.
1: My name is Sarah Kim and I'm from Austin, Texas. I'm a Cheeselandian because while life is great, cheese makes it better. Wisconsin cheese has proven time and time again to be a delicious expression of craft, hard work and tradition. As a Cheeselandian, I am able to share a Gouda experience with fellow cheese and food lovers nationwide, as well as connect with cheese producers and cheesemongers, taking my love of cheese to another level. I invite you to join Cheeselandia because during these difficult times, it has been even more important to take it easy and get cheesy. The Cheeselandia community and events have been the glue helping to keep us together and connected, and I would love it if you would join me. And let's face it, if you hear the word cheese and get a little hungry, then you've found a place you can call home. To find out more about Cheeselandia, go to Cheeselandia.com.
2: So, you have been creating the big map of outbreaks since last spring. And I wondered, because you haven't been on for a couple of months now, would you remind listeners of the number of outbreaks at Smithfield, I'm not asking across the board uh, in the meatpacking industry, but just Smithfield overall, what about the their numbers in terms of workers infected, fatalities? Do you have any data on that?
3: Yes. Yeah, so, uh, throughout the pandemic, according to the data I've collected, there's been fourteen outbreaks that I've been able to tie to Smithfield facilities um, in the past year. And at those outbreaks, uh, there it's been they they have been tied to over thirty six hundred cases and thirteen. <laughs> deaths among workers, um, according, and that's according to data that I've aggregated from news reports and from public health agencies.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Incredible. Um, and then so union, the union president, John Grant, the union that represents meatpacking workers, uh, has po- pointed to initial cooperation um, at the Farmer John plant in terms of reporting, you know, cases and so forth. But then uh, he's reported that they that the Farmer John executives began to lawyer up. What, what do you mean by that? Or what did he mean by that, to be more accurate?
3: Yes. Yeah, so this is John Grant, president of UFCW, um, United Food and Commercial Workers Union, Local 770, which works in, in Los Angeles County. And, um, you know, the the report that that John Grant had was that, you know, initially there was cooperation from the uh company in terms of trying to address the initial outbreak last spring, uh but ever since the process has been quote exasperating, he said. Um and, mm. and I believe he was referring to generally um you know the company's um approach to you know as more um outbreaks arose and more workers got sick um you know corporate strategy and maybe less cooperation from the plant managers. Um and Grant had said in in my interview with him um, several weeks ago, that workers were still struggling um, to access. Uh, they're still, still have been asked to reuse masks and gloves at the facility um, after Incredible. struggling for months to access uh, PPE. And that, you know, which is, and this is a common um, concern still at meatpacking plants that, uh, you know, workers are still in incredibly close quarters. Um, you know, there hasn't, he, he alleged there haven't been staggered break times to allow for more distancing among workers. So um, at, uh, you know, the cafeteria or in break rooms, uh, you know, workers are in extremely close quarters. He said, quote, the breaks and lunches are like Petri dishes. Right. Uh, so, and worth noting, Smithfield has said that, uh, you know, the company has provided PPE to workers and it has staggered um, break and lunch times. But again, that's the report from the union president that they're not seeing that consistently. Right, right. And then um,
2: in November, the state of California issued an emergency temporary standard. And that would be something that, you know, tells meatpacking companies that they must uh, enforce distancing, testing, training. So, training. You know, being like you got to stay, stay six feet apart, and you have to wash your hands. I guess I don't know wear your PPE, but I I thought that that I thought that that ETS um, that calls for those you know uh, protocols were, was already the norm, so. <laughs> What, what was that? It, did they institute that? Did the, did the state issue that ETS because of the Cal OSHA report in uh, November or or were there just no protocols in place before that? And this was like, oh, my goodness, I guess we need to do this.
3: So this is a critical question for uh, national regulation of these facilities also. So essentially what's been happening for the past year is that the CDC and OSHA have had um, guidelines for these facilities to follow in terms of um, distancing workers, providing PPE, testing regimens, and so on. But those guidelines um, are not requirements, so they're not enforceable. Um, yeah. it's, it's more like a, um, a framework that the industry can use for its COVID response. There's been a lot of agitation among um, you know workplace safety advocates, unions, democratic lawmakers to have a federal enforceable standard that these companies and plants would have to meet in order to protect workers from the spread of COVID. And that's not just at meatpacking facilities. That's for all sure. workplaces. Right. Um, so the, there's been a lot of, um, as I said, agitation for a federal emergency temporary standard from federal OSHA that would have these requirements requirements um, Meanwhile there are many about half of states have state OSHA so they're not under um, the the umbrella of federal OSHA but rather under a state OSHA department and so in California it, it when it, the state went ahead and passed its own ETS um, which essentially uh, mandates what was previously a, a recommended um, guideline so mm-hmm. we're still in the early months of seeing um, you know the enforcement of that ETS It went into effect um, in December one. Um, And Cal OSHA has since opened a second investigation into this um, Farmer John facility. Um, So, you know, now they have the framework, uh, investigators have the framework of the ETS um, to potentially um, bring some new enforcement actions against that facility and and other um, companies in in the state that that might be violating the ETS. Um, I haven't seen a lot of news um, about, uh, you know, how that's been implemented yet, but um, it's definitely something that workplace safety advocates in the state are eager for, um, you know, for the ETS to be, be able to bring some more teeth to, to how these um, uh, workplace safety requirements are actually being implemented in workplaces.
2: And, you know, what's interesting, and, uh, you know, this is completely off the cuff here, but as I, I sent you that um, press release from the North American Meat Institute, Uh, saying that, you know, COVID worker, uh, you know, COVID cases in amongst meatpacking workers are down, you know, X number of percent. And they've you know, they have implemented all these various, you know, testing, training, PPE, blah, blah, blah. Um, And yet you're saying you've just made it clear that with the exception of the state of California and maybe one or two others, uh, these are, as you said, guidelines. These, there is no, uh, there is no enforcement um, possible with, um, you know, with these protocols, it's just, you know, if you choose to do this as a company or, or a corporation, if you choose to adopt these things, well, then, you know, that's a great public relations thing, but you don't actually have to. So I'm just, you know, I just want to marvel at the fact that your, your own work actually is being quoted by the North American Meat Institute uh, in support of how wonderfully well they're doing in <laughs> reducing their caseload. I mean,
3: it, I find the irony of that absolutely breathtaking. Um, did you want to comment on that, or should we just move on? Sure. No, I mean I've said publicly that um, you know the the Meat Institute's use of of the data I've been collecting for Fern to show essentially what what the Meat Institute is is saying. Their analysis is taking the the number of daily cases that I've been uh, reporting uh, among meatpacking workers over the past several months and comparing that to. Uh, Data reported by the New York Times in terms of, uh, you know, uh, new cases in the entire U.S. population per 100,000 people um, and saying that compared uh, comparing meatpacking workers to the national infection rate, meatpacking workers have significantly lower infection rate per capita. Uh, than nationally. And I've said publicly several times that this is a misleading analysis because the, the data available from the New York Times is extremely comprehensive from every all 50 states. Uh, the data that I'm collecting is uh, extremely not comprehensive. It's the best we have available, but uh, very few states are releasing granular information about uh, worker cases by Occupational sector, and uh, right. in large part, in many states, that's because of pressure from business interests, including um, at sometimes, uh, you know, potentially the the meat industry. Um, to not release that information about worker illness. And and I've requested many times that the meat industry and meat companies, uh, you know, release that data to me and also congressional investigators, uh, members of Congress have asked for that data and it has not been released. So it's sort of comparing apples and oranges essentially um, because we have an extremely limited data set on worker illness in the meatpacking sector compared to the comprehensive information we have about uh, population-wide illness. Yeah, of course. Yeah, I mean... uh... Yeah, one,
2: one has to give a tip of the hat to the, uh, the formidable spin uh, <clears throat> that they've been able to bring to bear on that. Um, there was another story that you referenced in your Twitter account, um, which I picked up on. that was uh, published in the Fresno Bee about a couple of Foster Farms poultry processing plants. Um, and they, they made it uh, in, the, in the story. It was made clear that Cal OSHA was actually informing the plants in advance of their intention to inspect them. Now, is that normal? Does that always happen? Does OSHA say, "Oh, hey, uh, you know, John Q. Processor, I'm 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 going to come in with my team on Tuesday, and uh, we're going to inspect for COVID." Like, (laughs) you know, so get ready. I mean, like, what? How does that work?
3: That's a great question, and uh, you know, I'm not familiar enough with um, OSHA inspections at the federal or state level to make a, a sweeping generalization. I know that there are instances in which um inspections are announced and there are other instances in which they are unannounced and I would really recommend folks check out that story in the Fresno Bee about about how the the investigations at these Foster Farm plants underwent because i think there's some the reason i found that story really compelling was how it it shows how much confusion confusion excuse me and miscommunication there's been at different points uh between all the different levels of regulation around these facilities like it was talking about with the, the, the farmer john plant as well um and that you know even with good intentions uh you know an investigator in that case um, giving advance notice to the facility created a lot of distrust in, in what was going to come from that investigation. Um, so, I do think that, again, that's um, one example of a question that is applying. That, that can be applied broadly to a lot of meatpacking plants that I've heard people talk sure. about across the country, which is when we're having these inspections, you know, are they, are they happening and sort of, um, you know, again, announced or unannounced are are the conditions that workers ex- experience day to day going to be represented um, on the day of the inspection, or is it going to be, uh, you know, sort of cleaned up because um, you know, the, the company knows that inspectors are coming. So that's a critical question of, workplace safety oversight that existed far before the pandemic but you know of course is under the spotlight now as well.
2: Well it was interesting I mean in that Fresno B piece they also quoted a worker who said that um, and this is not in uh, you know not uh, reflected in the in the inspection process but they they said that the the break rooms you know which of course Foster Farms was like yes we're complying with all the regulations they had removed all the tables and chairs from the break rooms but the the workers were just sitting on the floor um, you know right next to each other. (laughs) just as they would have been in a chair on a table. I mean, you know, it was just, okay, yeah, I can see you really did a great job there. Um, So in that same piece, we were also told that the Merced County Health Department was skeptical of the outbreak information being provided by Foster Farms. And I was wondering, Leah, how, how in fact could those numbers be verified? I mean, by Cal OSHA or any other body? Like, how could you Uh, You know, since you've been reporting on this since last March, is there any mechanism by which a county or state health authority is able to verify information that is fed to them by meat processing companies?
3: You know, this is a great question, and I think unfortunately, the unsatisfying answer is that it really depends yeah. um, again, this is a place where it's really worth hammering home how how variable these processes are from county to county city to mm-hmm. city health department to health department. There is no standardized process through which um, any health entity you know state to state is collecting um, you know test or case. I should say illness information by occupational sector. So, um, you know, whether a county is collecting, you know, a person's place of employment when they get tested at a county health site, for instance, is hugely variable. Um, Whether that person was tested on site at their workplace and then that workplace is reporting um, that information to the health department. You know, that's another method through which that information is getting to a health agency. But, you know, those two testing scenarios are very different. So, um, you know, in this this story, you know, it was reported that there was some skepticism Skepticism, um, you know, I've I've reported on other instances where it seems that there's a very close um, and you know trusting relationship between the meat company and the health agency. That this information is being reported very quickly, you know, day to day or week to week. And um, I have no reason to to um, believe that the information is inaccurate. I have no way to know, um, but I do think <laughs> that it's again important piece of data and, and seeing how uh, that variation can create a lot of question marks around the validity of the data that we're getting and just how sure. irregular and inconsistent that data is. Right. And
2: so the, the, the job after the pandemic is over, the job is to figure out how to create a mechanism by which uh, these reporting, you know, reporting this kind of data is is standardized, is verifiable um, and is trustworthy. Because, I mean, honestly, I, you know, I could easily see why these people are, <laughs> are you know, they can fudge those numbers. Who's going to check it out? Who's going to really know? How, is they gonna, how are they going to figure it out? They may not be. Uh, I'd love to give them the benefit of the doubt, as you, as you seem to. But, I'm, you know, I'm much far too old and cynical to, to do so. Um, so anyway, since March 1st, meatpacking workers have been sent to the very top of the list to get vaccinated, Um, Do you have any insight into how that is rolling out and whether companies have been able to secure the vaccines they need and then also whether or not workers are willing to accept the vaccine?
3: Yeah, so this is definitely one of the one of the biggest t- topics right now in this in this uh, conversation. Yep. You know, um, the the question of worker vaccination or the issue, I should say, of worker vaccination has really united uh, meat companies with worker unions. There's really been a unified call that these workers need to be prioritized uh, in early phases of vaccine distribution. There's been some frustration that states. Um, have have uh, veered away from the CDC's recommendation to put, uh, you know, manufacturing, food manufacturing workers in phase 1B. Uh, so that's an early phase of vaccine distribution in every state. And uh, some states have shifted, um, you know, in the past several months to, you know, more of an age based criteria that has deprioritized um, these manufacturing workers. But uh, mm-hmm. in, in more and more states, um, you know, food processing and meat processing workers are becoming eligible, especially in March um, and so there's been, you know, a lot of these companies are vaccinating workers on site and on site, um, you know, vaccine clinics, Uh, many of the biggest packing facilities have on site health clinics that have already been doing worker testing. So they're they're adding vaccination um, to that uh, process. Um, There's not, uh, again, another data issue, there's there's no sort of standardized um, data collection um, by any, you know, uh, public authority that's um, keeping track of where these vaccination events are, how many workers have been vaccinated. Um, But I've been trying to just sort of follow news reports and uh, the news reports that I've seen of, you know, many, uh, many of these vaccination events indicate that there's been a lot of uptake among workers, you know, um, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, very popular, especially. Um, when workers can get vaccinated on site. And I know that um, UFCW in my interviews with them has, has encouraged these on-site vaccine clinics because it just reduces another hurdle uh, to vaccination. Um, so, uh, you know, the vaccination um, uh, process is definitely underway. You know, I've heard from many um, workplace safety advocates that um, you, you know, they're really, uh, really driving home that vaccination is just one tool to to curtail the, the pandemics, uh, the virus has spread among these workers. Um, you know, it will be still many, uh, many weeks before, you know, an entire, before the vaccine is fully distributed to this Workforce before it's you know everyone in sure. every state is um, eligible and also even then just as population wide you know not every single person will, who's eligible will be vaccinated um, and additionally you know this is an industry with a relatively high turnover rate so there'll be new workers coming into the facilities um, so you know uh, labor advocates are are saying you know plants and companies need to have strategy for ongoing vaccination and in the meantime you know keeping up masking testing and other Uh, prevention protocols to to curtail the spread of the virus. Um, So those are all issues that I'll be watching closely in the next few months.
2: Well, and you'll be coming back to tell us about them in the next few months. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely.
3: (laughs) I look forward to it. Leah, thank you so, so much. This is your moment
2: to um, uh, encourage people to go to Fern or your website or wherever to
3: learn more about your work. Go right ahead. Sure. Thanks, Katie. So if if folks want to read more of my reporting and Fern's reporting on Um, COVID spread, uh, these, uh, you know, food processing facilities, and we're covering the pandemic more broadly as well. You can go to thefern, T-H-E-F-E-R-N.org. And you can always check out my Twitter at Leah J. Douglas uh, for the latest updates and information there as well. Fantastic. Thank you so much,
2: Leah. I really appreciate your time today. Uh, Thanks Thanks, to my sponsor.
3: And uh, thank you folks for listening.
2: We'll see you next week with another show. Have a good one.